Well, on this sort of rep- retro Christmas Sunday, we uh, find ourselves in a series, a little mini-series, kind of springing out of Isaiah 53 under the topic of belief and unbelief. And for us Christians, we, we believe in the Lord because the Holy Spirit has opened our eyes to do that. And we stand amazed sometimes when we see people that we would so desperately want to believe. Um, we were amazed that they don't believe. We're sometimes incredulous. We, we long for people to believe in Jesus and know him. And we uh, are asking the question these couple weeks, why don't people believe? Why won't they just do it? You know, I heard the analogy of, you know, it's like when you're witnessing to somebody, it's like loading the change in the, in the soda machine and you're just loading it and loading it and you hit the thing and nothing happens. And then, you know, finally something, you know, really kicks somebody over the top and the change falls and, you know, out comes your drink. Well, it's, it's kind of like that. You load people with truth and eventually things come together in people's minds. But I think it's important for us to understand on a biblical level, what does it take for someone to cross the threshold? And how do we pray for people intelligently? How do we witness to people intelligently with hope in God who is the Savior? We can't save anyone. God has to do the saving for everyone that will truly believe. Isaiah 53, if you look just at these First two verses as a springboard for where I'm going to go after. Let me read the words of Isaiah. He's speaking for Israel. I believe the remnant that is saved in the end where, where you have all of the believing of Israel, of ethnic Israel at the end of the tribulation. They are saying this in um, retrospective, in a retrospective way. They say, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. This goes on and we'll pick it up next time in Isaiah 53 to speak of a humble servant lamb sacrifice For by his stripes we are healed. He bore our transgressions and sins on the cross at Golgotha. And Israel, when Jesus was coming, they they were blinded in their own thinking and, and they missed the Messiah. The arm of the Lord, as I talked about last week, is this right arm statement of God's power and the, the arm that split the Red Sea so that Israel could cross and go into the promised land. It, it's amazing to think about the arm of the Lord and all that that meant. And then the arm of the Lord was revealed to them 2,000 years ago as a little baby in a nondescript town with a nondescript family, and that's the Messiah. And they're looking back at this and they're going, and we missed it. We missed it. And who has believed in this Messiah? And now they are um, projected to be the ones who will believe in the end, along with all the church. Well, I want to just interrupt this big message series with a passage that's a Christmas passage with a Jew who did believe in the Messiah and how he got there. 
And I want to invite you to turn over with me to the Gospel of Matthew to learn about what would be one of the most unlikely disciples to believe. The Jews, in general, should have been the most likely people to believe. They did not understand that Jesus was coming as a servant. They didn't see the prophecies through to what they were really saying. And then you have the story of Joseph who, as a Jew, should have believed, but in his circumstances was actually, from a human standpoint, would have been off-put by this Messiah coming because he was betrothed to Mary He was in an engaged relationship under Jewish law that was marriage without coming together physically yet. It's a step stronger than being engaged. It's you're actually ratified and committed to one another. And so this young man, Joseph, a carpenter, raised in a carpenter's trade, was someone who was facing incredible circumstances with Mary, who was to be found with child. And in that situation, under Jewish law, under, under Old Testament law, Deuteronomy 22, he was to bring her before the court's judgment to perhaps be stoned or killed with her adulterer. And so what to him would have been very distasteful in that moment, finding out about this baby in, in unholy circumstances was to be for him to come clear and see through the eyes of faith that what was unholy to him is the most holy to him. What was disgusting to him had to become saving for him. If you think about this in, in terms of the church at large, most people might understand something about Jesus, and they've understood Jesus as a great example. But most people do not believe in Jesus at the level that we are called to believe in him for saving faith, which is to believe in him as the virgin born, um, the one who is conceived by the Holy Spirit, totally holy, eternal, our Savior and our God and our King and our Master. That's where Joseph had to be brought to as a Jew who was a likely disciple in terms of him being a Jew to embrace the Messiah, but an unlikely candidate in that regard because of the circumstances that he was in. He had to work through several thresholds to come to full saving faith and commitment in the Lord. That's what Matthew is unfolding for us in Matthew 1, beginning at verse 18. Let me read this account. It says, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit and her husband Joseph being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name 
Jesus. So what a story. How did Joseph get there from here? Now, we, we should be able to relate to Joseph maybe more than Mary. Um, Joseph is kind of, a, again, a nondescript person to us. This is what we know about Joseph right here. I mean, other than um, the fact that he's recorded in this way for us and there's movies that are you know, displayed about who Joseph might have been, this is really all we know. We know Jesus was said to be the carpenter's son. This is Joseph the carpenter, just a man who worked with his hands, who was living a normal life, but was set in a, in a way that is amazing for us. I guess we're, we're trying to learn about Joseph's faith, how he came to understand the virgin birth. He came to understand Jesus' saving. How did he do that? Well, first of all, he had to understand that Jesus is eternal. Jesus is eternal. I want to show you this in the context of where Matthew builds. We studied this a long time ago when I began the gospel of Matthew, but I want to just give you a little bit of a refresher course on the genealogy. Not going through it all, but verses 1 to 17 is a genealogical record. And we're not going to study this piece by piece, but I want you to understand that this is a he begat, he begat, he begat to trace a Davidic kingly line. This is Matthew crowning Jesus as king, saying that Jesus came through all of these relationships, all of these families in precision and in power and preservation. And Joseph, who's perhaps the most nondescript of them all out of all of this lineage, is the father to adopt Jesus. He's the, you have sort of the kingly legal line through Joseph where through Mary you have the bloodline and both converge to be the perfect line of David. You see that all the way um, in verse 16 and it says, and Jacob, this is just a Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. It's the Messiah. So here's the summary. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. If Abraham, the father of faith, a believer for whom this covenant of faith was, was created, and it's speeding ahead, showing that David, as the forerunner king, would um, sort of stand for Christ's line, and that Christ was coming through this line to be the ultimate Messiah. But then you have the interruption of Babylon, and I'm not going to unpack this yet. We'll get a little bit more into detail, but that's where things are going really bad in Israel. The kingdom divides. You have you know, Jeroboam in the north, you have Rehoboam in the south, you have Israel in the north, you have Judah in the south, and you have all this turbulence and kings that are going after idolatry. Things are really going bad nationally, much like our country today, but even far worse, to the point where God's saying, I'm done with you, and I'm going to chastise you with Babylonian captivity. This is the, the scene 600 BC, 600 years before Christ, you have Nebuchadnezzar who swallows up the southern kingdom and takes Daniel and Hazariah, Ananiah, Mishael, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they all, they all go to exile and Babylonian captivity, but nothing could break this kingly line because they came back 
and they were, they were given back, and you have this line that finishes out even through nondescript Joseph. So with all that sovereignty, you have, you, have, you have Jesus coming humanly through that line. But then with that origin, and that's what the word genealogy means, verse 1, the genealogy, the origin of Jesus you have, uh, you have Jesus who is born, verse 16 it says. Um, but then in verse 18, you have now the birth of Jesus Christ. There's a bit of a break. There's, an, there's, there's a nuance here that says, here's the kingly origin, but let's go bigger picture than that. Let's go to um, Jesus having um, the origin of heaven. He is eternal. He doesn't really have a beginning in terms of his status as deity right john 1 1 in the beginning was the word and the word was with god and the word was god he was in the beginning with god verse 14 and the word became flesh and dwelt among us this eternal word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory the glory of the only son from the father full of grace and truth This is what Matthew is emphasizing. It's what Joseph was needing to grasp. This woman that he's betrothed to, he is legally married to, is with child, but it's the child who is eternal. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. It's this unique way. When his mother had been betrothed to Joseph, Before they came together physically, she was found to be with child. How? From the Holy Spirit. This is what the liberal churches don't believe. Jesus was born of a virgin. Well, you don't need the virgin birth. You don't need Jesus to be that big, that eternal, coming from the Holy Spirit if you're not answering a major problem. Jesus had to be this eternal God who is man so that he could solve our sin issue. Instead of a do-gooding, you know, my good will outweigh my bad version of Christianity, this is a a miraculous conception that comes to miraculously save us from our sin. This is what Joseph is wrestling with. We know little about him. He was a craftsman, a tecton in the original language, a carpenter by trade, Matthew 13, 55. He was called, as we see, a just man. He was kind of an Old Testament believer. He believed in all of the law of God and was, was a godly guy. It was no accident that Joseph was selected here. He was playing this unique role as a nondescript participant in the line of David. And it's contrasting Joseph, who is going to become Jesus' stepfather. He's going to adopt Jesus, but he needs to do more than that. He needs to believe in Jesus, and he needs to see that there's a disparity in origins here between just Jesus coming from the line of David. He also is eternal. He's majestic and eternal. He is the I am. Remember, Jesus said that to the Pharisees confronting their unbelief and the Pharisees who were trusting in religion. Again, liberals, they trust in religion. They trust in do-gooding. They trust in making themselves right with God. A Pharisee was clinging to that. And Jesus said, listen to the Pharisees, before Abraham was, I am. I am. Jesus always has been. He's the self-existent one. He is Yahweh. He is God. That's John 8, 58. 
Joseph's narration, it's a struggle that we can hopefully relate to. Some have related to becoming stepfathers. They've had to um, find a, a unique path to fatherhood. And that adoption is such a beautiful picture of uh, what we've experienced as being adopted into the family of God. Um, perhaps Joseph's dreams were dashed. He didn't know what to do with Mary. He, he had to be convinced um, that this was okay. He had to believe in Jesus by um, faith, by total faith, total faith, right? That's, he's very vulnerable. He's just a common guy. He had to wrestle with what was happening. He was betrothed to Mary, the Kedushin and Hupa. These are the two phases of uh, this betrothal period. He was legally ratified. There would have been older teens. They would have been on probation status. And um, everything depended on their faithfulness to God and their purity. Had they been impure, then it would have made all of this story suspect. It was before that they came together and the baby was conceived in the mother's womb by the Holy Spirit. How do we explain that? Well, the more I've studied this concept is we don't explain it. We just accept it. It's miraculous. The Apostles' Creed says Jesus Christ was conceived by the Holy Ghost and and born of the Virgin Mary. I think that um, the emphasis of him in his origin being eternal is important. I think secondly, a second emphasis that I would say by way of note-taking, you have to grasp that Jesus is holy. He's from the Holy Spirit. You see that in verse 18. You see it repeated again in verse 20. Conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Jesus is completely holy. This origin of conception proves that. Had Joseph and Mary come together and had Jesus been coming directly from the physicality of of Mary and Joseph, then the curse would have been passed on to Jesus. Jesus avoids that curse entirely. Psalm 51 Five says, David says, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Like it or not, we were born sinners. This is why we believe in Jesus is because we've accepted the sinfulness of our own sin and our own need for a savior. Someone who is holy where we are unholy, who can take our place substitutionarily, who can give us the freedom from our sins. Don't we need to hear that message this day where The news media wants to complicate your life, put a stranglehold on your hope, make you feel hopeless and there's no way out so you'll keep consuming it. And instead we can supersede all of that and say we have a savior who was conceived in the immaculate conception by the Holy Spirit who is eternal and also perfectly holy. We're called to be perfect as our heavenly father is perfect. And the only way we are perfect is we are made perfect. We don't make ourselves perfect. We understand sin. We understand what's, what's making this world kind of royal like a, like a stomach ache around us. And we have peace with God because our sin has been solved by this holy Savior. He comes to our world from outside of our world. He comes into this fallen world. He's outside of the curse of sin. And he's made us right There was a curse on the kingly line even. I'm not going to unpack that 
um, again out of uh, Matthew 1, but the curse of Jeconiah was, uh, was given to the kings when there was so much idolatry at 600 B.C., um, it says in Jeremiah 22, 24, and 30 that he gave Israel to, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. And so the kings were cursed. And so had Joseph been part of the, the physical union with Mary to conceive the baby, this kingly curse would have been on Jesus. Jesus avoids all of that because the Holy Spirit comes outside of this. And so... This is our Savior. Christ is holy. Christ is holy because he is sinless and he's born outside of the curse of sin. This is just like our salvation. I think if we believe at all that we can save ourselves, then we're really not grasping grace at all. Grace is where you come to the end of yourself. Grace is where you see sin not only as something that you do, but something that you are. You are a sinner. And so you are in absolute need of grace. It's where you are not only wanting to do something, you did do something. You were caught by what you did. The lights come on and you have no recourse but to put yourself at the mercy of your ultimate parent who is God. And you say, how can we make this thing right Well, the thing is made right outside of you, not by something that's good inside you that you redeem, that you say, well, you did do this good thing, so now I'm not going to do that bad thing to you. No, it's all outside of us by grace. Martin Luther called the righteousness of Christ that's given to us the alien righteousness of Christ. It's imputed to us. It's not something we earn. It's something that's given to us. There's a hint of that in verse 19 where it says, and her husband Joseph being a just man, that's the word righteous, a righteous man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. He's an Old Testament believer, I think, and and he was grasping and grappling with the Messiah at this point. But doing so in obedience to the word of God. In Deuteronomy 22, I mentioned this before, it says, If there is a betrothed virgin and a man meets her in the city, it's Deuteronomy 22, 23, and lies with her, and then you shall bring them both out to the gate of the, that city, and you shall stone them to death with stones. Reminds us of John chapter 8, the woman caught in adultery. The young woman, because she did not cry for help, though she was in the city, she was complicit in the sin. And the man, because he violated his neighbor's wife, committed adultery. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. What's Joseph doing? Joseph is saying, I'm going to put her away or divorce her quietly. I'm going to end our relationship. I'm going to absorb the shame of this by not explaining what really happened. I'm going to put this away and I'm going to protect Mary's life because the situation is not clear what really happened. It's left unexplained. But Joseph, he had a a kind heart. Ligon Duncan said there were many who are righteous and not kind and kind and not righteous, but Joseph was both. He said, when God chose a human father for his son, he chose a man who would be righteous and kind, qualities that reflect God the Father himself. He made a resolution. He resolved to be kind to her. He resolved to divorce her quietly, to figure it out. 
So really what he's figuring out is not what to do with Mary, but he's figuring out if he's going to believe, fully believe in Jesus, fully embrace the Lord. There are people who are there who have believed a lot of the message. They believe a lot of the truth, but they haven't fully committed themselves to Christ, fully believe that he is the eternal God, the one who is over their entire life. He's holy, meaning I need this sinless savior who has avoided the curse, right? And then I need him as my savior. I need him to be my savior. That's what verses 20 and 21 talk about. It says, but as he considered these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David. Here's Bible revelation. Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. That's truth. This is progressive revelation. Joseph knew all that he knew from the Old Testament, and then he's hearing new revelation that was New Testament revelation for him to grasp and grapple with. Matthew Henry said, the Lord gives guidance to the thoughtful, not the unthinking. More revelation gave more clarity. This didn't contradict Deuteronomy 22, what I just read. It was just clarifying what he needed to do in light of the law, in light of his situation, in light of his circumstances. He was learning more and more about who this was in Mary's womb. Who is the Messiah? Remember, the Messiah was all projected and predicted throughout the Old Testament. All all the ceremonial sacrifices, all of the pictures of Jesus, and this is actually him. And the, the, the truth is coming to him from this revelation. There's several revelatory dreams that happen in Matthew in verse 20, and then chapter 2, verse 12, verse 13, verse 19, and 22. A lot of revelatory dreams are, are hitting One is hitting Mary where where she's coming clear about the fact that she was going to conceive by the Holy Spirit. And remember, she pondered all of these things in her heart. She had to, in Luke 2, 19, treasure up these things and ponder and think about these things and decide if she was going to be a believer. And she was the believer and she tied everything together. And you read about that in the Magnificat, what she says. Well, Joseph is doing this in his own mind. Perhaps he thought of Sarah's barren womb where it was open for the birth of Isaac. And then Manoah's um, barren wife, her womb was open for Samson to be born. There's no direct precedent here for Joseph, which you have the very specific wording of conception by the Holy Spirit. Verse 21, she will bear a son and you shall call his name what? Jesus, Jesus, our modern English derivation, Joshua, it's uh, where we get the idea of um, Yahweh saving, Yeshua saves. It means savior. It's saying that Jesus is the savior from the burning bush, that Christophany, where he said to Moses, where Moses said, who shall I say sent me? And, And from the burning bush, God, who is Jesus, is speaking and saying, say, I am sent you. I am that I am sent you. The self-existent one. This is Jesus, who is the Savior. Yahweh saves. He is eternal. He is holy. And he is Savior, begat by the Holy Spirit. Not natural means, but supernatural means that Joseph had to embrace 
by faith. This is the angel of the Lord, meaning God is speaking directly to Joseph. And as a believer, you grasp and grapple with truth and say, I'm either going to believe this or I am not. I'm understanding that God's sovereign plan has worked here, that this is a miracle conception. It will be a miracle birth. It's a king who is to save. This is the arm of the Lord. Back to Isaiah 53. Who's believed a message like this? This is an odd message. I mean, it's, it's, it's not odd to us who have been raised in a Christian household, but it's an odd message to believe that this Christ child who grew up 2,000 years ago is fully God, fully man, and our Savior. And he is all that we hold on to. Not bank accounts, not reputation, not job security, not political security. Jesus is our security. He is our safety net. He is our savior. That's an odd message, but it's, it's our everything message, right? For those who believe. Why do we believe? Because we've treasured these things in our hearts. We've considered these things and we have believed. Galatians 4.4. 4, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. That means God sent forth the word, the eternal one, the holy one. He came as the son, the second member of the Trinity, fully God, but also born of a woman, born under the law, fully man. Predicted back in Genesis 3.15, the first gospel account, Jesus put the curse on the serpent. I will put enmity or angst between you and the woman. Between your offspring and her offspring. Offspring is seed. Between your seed and her seed. What are we talking about? We're talking about, we're talking about Satan's seed, which is everybody's born under the curse. And then Mary one day, where the baby is conceived by the Holy Spirit, sinless. You have sinful seed, all of humanity, and sinless seed. And the sinless seed will bruise your head. He, Jesus, will bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. It's the crush of the cross. Mary's offspring meant to crush the serpent's head. Enmity between ourselves and God is solved and we have peace with God as we are saved by the Lord. Jesus is Yeshua, he is the Savior. He saves from guilt, according to J.C. Ryle, washing with the atonement of blood from the dominion of sin, putting in our hearts the sanctifying Holy Spirit in the presence, from the presence of sin, taking us out of the world to rest with him from the consequences of sin, giving a glorious body on the last day. We're saved. His people, the Jews, but this is broadcast to the nations. We're part of this. Jesus' humanity was essential so he could die, absorbing the penalty and punishment for sins. So the sacrificial payment to be eternal would mean that the Savior had to likewise be what? Not just man, but God. He's God. So he is eternal. He is holy. He is Savior. And he is God. You say, do I have to believe all of that to be a believer? Yeah. Yeah, you do. I mean, will I understand all of that when I first believe? Probably not. We don't deny any of it, and we're believing all of it as we understand and consider truth. That's what it means to have saving faith. 
You believe and the Lord saves you and it's sealed forever. But a true believer will keep believing and keep doors will keep opening in, in your mind. And you go, wow, God, I thought you were this big. You're this big. You're this big. You're this big. You're this big. And one day in heaven, it'll be like, okay, I've got all of eternity. I, I, I can't get my head all around all of it. But I see it clear in Jesus Christ, whom I worship at the throne. Right? God is... The I am. He's amazing. And he is Jesus. Verse 22 through the end. This is picking up on the prophecy of Isaiah. All this took place, all of this, to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Now, Isaiah spoke this all the way back 700 years earlier. All of this took place. So the carpenter's son, this nondescript young man, in a nondescript place with a nondescript wife, but they just happen to both be from the line of David, the kingly line, the bloodline. It comes together perfectly. It avoids the political curse from before. It comes through the bloodline, but you had to have the kingly line. It converges perfectly. And then the Holy Spirit's the one who puts Jesus in the womb through that miraculous conception which is a miracle which we can't fully understand, which makes Jesus perfectly holy and and the Messiah. And so Joseph is just grappling with this. And this angel is saying, look, this was all part of the plan all along. Nothing could have changed this. Nothing could have stopped this. No detail was going to eclipse this. And Isaiah 7, the context is really unique and bizarre and and bears a lot more attention than I'm going to give it. But It's verse 6, or I'm sorry, uh, verse 23 of chapter 1. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. That's taken from Isaiah 7, 14, and also um, a reference, Isaiah 8, 8, um, and 10. It says, which means God with us. So a virgin. The virgin is, is a name that also means maiden and unmarried woman and this is a word that was used back in the context of Isaiah um, when, again, I had mentioned before, the Babylonian captivity was coming. The kingdom was split. But when Isaiah said this prophecy in Isaiah chapter 7, it was 100 years earlier. So it's 700 BC, 700 years before. The kingdom is split. You've got uh, Uzziah, who uh, was the king, and he died Isaiah 6 talks about the year of Uzziah's death. That's when Isaiah saw the Lord. But then his son took over King Ahaz, and he's the king of Judah, the southern kingdom. And you have um, this, you can look it up later, but it's a Neo-Assyrian empire uh, where you have Syria and Assyria. And they're trying to get inside of this divided kingdom and just take it all over. That's what's happening. They want in. And so you have a couple wicked enemy kings, Aram and Pekah, who are coming to depose um, the throne. And Ahaz would have none of it, and he, he didn't make this coalition. He refused the coalition politically. All that is happening when Isaiah says, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. So you didn't make this coalition, and that's part of God preserving the people of God And he will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin, a maiden shall conceive and bear a son and she and shall call his name Emmanuel. In the Greek, Parthenos means virgin. It's a miracle birth. The title here is Emmanuel, which, 
you know, when you think of Jesus, his common name was Jesus. The, the name Emmanuel is more of a title, almost like a rank and position in the military. It means he is God. That's it. So you have Jesus, meaning Yahweh saves. You're the Messiah. Christ, the word Christ means Messiah. You're the anointed one. You're anointed just like King Saul and King David. You're this anointed ones. You're the Christ, the Messiah. Jesus is your common Joshua given name that we call you that reminds us that you save. And then Emmanuel is like your rank, which says you are God. God is here with us. As I talked about on Friday, he's with us in our everyday. He's with us as we live our lives. This is our Messiah. And for Joseph, he was grasping with the fact that Jesus was eternal. That Jesus is holy, born by the Holy Spirit, conceived by the Holy Spirit. He is Savior. His name is Jesus. He is Yeshua. He is the Savior. And he is Emmanuel. He is God with us. He's grasping and grappling with all this truth and believing it, that he is the promised king who is with us. He's with us even to the end of the age. So how did Joseph do with all of this? Did he believe? How do we know Joseph believed? Well, the old adage, actions speak louder than words. What did Joseph do? And Joseph woke from sleep. So he pondered, considered, thought, he woke up, and he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He, he obeyed scripture. What does it mean for the blinders to come off? You believe, and it's a belief that takes action. He took his wife. He married her. He didn't put her away. He didn't bring her to the courts. He didn't expose her, believing that she had become impregnated outside of wedlock by sin. He took her as his wife. And then it says, but knew her not until she had given birth. He stayed separate from her in holiness. Isn't that amazing? So that there would be no question in terms of this being the virgin born Messiah. And he called his name what? Jesus. So he obeyed. He obeyed the Lord. This is Yahweh saves. I do believe this is my Savior because I'm calling him Jesus. If you confess with your mouth, what? Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's not just pro forma. That's not just lip service. This is a yielded lordship. Jesus, you are my savior. You are eternal. You are holy. You are savior. You are God. You're my everything. Joseph believed the word of God. He applied the word of God and he was saved.